constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg, and I am your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. The first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're um, pleased to be joined by an Olin faculty member, Jonathan Adler, um, Associate Professor of Psychology. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. And, and um, we want to talk about your, your research specialty, which is uh, narrative and story and how it connects with how we make sense of our lives and, and uh, things that have happened to us. But um, before we do that... Um, Jonathan, you're a scholar and associate prof of psychology at Olin College. But let's go back in the time machine. What were some of the early influences that put you on your current path? Oh, well, I think in my story, there's a sort of nature-nurture combination that one could never escape. So both of my parents are in the mental health field. My father's a psychiatrist and my mother's a social worker. So I've always been attuned to sort of psychological issues. Mm. Um, But the truth is, I think one of the big influences on my career path, without me being able to have articulated this at the time, was my deep involvement in theater um, ever since sixth grade, really. Theater's always been my main extracurricular, and it's something that I'm still involved with. But I've always been interested in trying to understand characters, In theater, when working with actors, we talk a lot about the importance of objective, trying to understand what characters are trying to do and why, Um, and the notion that identity is a story, that we are all weaving stories about ourselves all the time. Yeah, that's so interesting, and and, um, and maybe this is a related and and connected question. Um, We're interested on the show in... A, a lot in people's unleashing experiences and and whether you know uh, to what extent they've had them to kind of go their own way we we talk mark somerville and i talk about this uh, quite a bit in a whole new engineer what what experiences or individuals um in your life helped give you the courage to go your own way yeah so i i think different steps along the way Um, So when I got to college, I did not think I was going to major in psychology. I thought I was going to do history or English, very, you know, very storied disciplines. And I knew that I was going to do theater, although I I have never planned to make a career doing theater. Um, So 
in my very first semester at college, I took a freshman writing seminar that was called um, Representations of Mental Illness in Literature. And it was ostensibly a literature course, but it was co-taught by a psychology professor who was attending to the ways in which mental illness was represented in these novels that we were reading. And I think that being my introduction to college as sort of a very interdisciplinary one has really stuck with me. I, um, in college, I got a true liberal arts education. And then as I found my way to graduate school, my graduate mentor um, certainly plays the biggest role in shaping my career. He's someone who... um, who shared sort of a deep belief in the power of the liberal arts and someone who, you know, sort of believed in trying to nurture graduate students to do what they were most passionate about. So he has really um, been a guiding light for me. Yeah, nice. And, and, um, and you might expect someone with your uh, deep research interests uh, to go off and go to a traditional research university, you did your PhD at Northwestern. Um, uh, but I, I'm curious, what what led you to uh, to an engineering school of all things, yeah. uh, Olin College? Yeah, yeah. So again, with the with the real support of my graduate mentor to try to figure out what the career path was that was going to be the best fit for me. Um, I did. I went on the academic market, and I was mostly looking at small liberal arts colleges. That was the model that I had come from as an undergraduate. I went to Bates College, and I that was sort of the model of undergraduate education that I really was seeking out. And so, you know, originally it was the pragmatics of the job market, where you know I sort of looked to see what. what jobs were out there, and most of the jobs that I was applying to were these, you know, very typical niche jobs with, embedded within psychology departments at liberal arts colleges. And then here was this ad for assistant professor of arts, humanities, or social sciences, and it was at Olin. And Olin is in Needham, Massachusetts, and I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, which is the town next door. So I had sort of heard about the Olin story ever since it really got kicked off. It was in the back of my radar screen. I was friendly with a woman in high school who went on to be part of the original administrative team at Olin. It was on my radar screen as an unusual place. And so I thought, well, I'll throw my hat in the ring. Um, we'll see how this goes. And then, like many people... Um, like many people's Olin stories, starting with my very first real contact, it was clear to me that this was a different kind of place. It was a place that really recognized uh, a passion for developing young people into mature, complex thinkers. And that seemed like a really exciting opportunity for me. I did not know much about the the dynamics of the field, the variety of fields in engineering. So that was all new to me. But but it's just been wonderful. Yeah. So, in what ways? Uh, you know. So, it sounds like it's been a a good a good fit, and and uh, you know, you have these diverse interests that that imp- that were powering the directions that you went. How did how did that play out? How's that played out at Olin for you? Yeah, it's been really wonderful. So, I think you know, Olin is a place that again is interested in taking risks in the service of maximizing out um, impact. And 
it's been a place that has been very open to people from outside traditional engineering disciplines coming in to try to influence the, the direction of the curriculum. And so I feel like I've had a real freedom and flexibility to experiment in my own work trying to, um, trying to add to the mission of the college. And yeah, and so and and so I'm hearing a story of influence and and um, making a difference. In, in what ways have your interests in theater, psychology, and and the liberal arts played played out for you more specifically at Olin? Sure. So the Olin curriculum is based on this idea that engineering starts with people understanding who we're designing for, what they value, yep. what opportunities exist, and also ends with people, right? Appreciating the context of our work, making a positive difference. So I think it's been a good fit in that the curriculum embraces this notion of starting and ending with people. And I've had an opportunity to be a voice of saying, hey, we, ha- we need tools for understanding those people. We yep. need... Um, tools for impacting their lives. And so I've tried to do that in both my curricular work and also my sort of one-on-one development, you know, the kind of mentoring work that I'm able to do with some students. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about your um, research. Your research is interested, and I'm, I'm quoting one of your biographies, the ways in which the process of making sense of negative experiences influence important life outcomes, unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, where's, uh, uh, can you say a little bit more about that and what, motiv- what motivates this uh, making sense of negative experience? Sure, sure. So obviously in everyone's life experiences, there are positive and negative events. And while positive events are often what make life, you know, enjoyable and worth living, they don't, tend to challenge our sense of self that much. Positive events are often easily woven into the story that we've been telling about our lives, whereas negative events are often unexpected, unanticipated, and certainly unwanted. And as such, they're harder. Negative events of all stripes are harder, and so they sort of beg for a meaning-making process. Um, A foundational assumption of my field is that the reason that we weave our lives into a story is in order to make sense of them, to give ourselves a a sense of unity and purpose. And negative experiences challenge both our sense of purpose, what are we doing and why, how is life meaningful, and also our sense of unity, so we feel like the same person from moment to moment. So we can often see positive experiences as Again, like the next chapter in our life story. So a promotion might be the logical next chapter or, you know, getting married is the next chapter in uh, the story of a long-term relationship. But negative experiences are more challenging than that. And so they beg for some kind of meaning-making process. So that's why I'm particularly interested in, in how people make sense of negative experiences. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I hear, I'm hearing that intellectually, but I'm, I'm thinking about like I could uh, uh, it, this that sentence grabbed me uh, emotionally um, oh, in terms absolutely. of negative negative never negative experience of my own life being really central to um, um, changes that I've made fairly late in life, and I'm just curious if there there was something emotionally under the hood there that 
um, led you oh, there, or, or whether it was an intellectual, uh, an intellectual pursuit only. No, I mean, I think it's some of both. I think any for anyone to follow an academic career, you have to have some kind of emotional investment in what you're doing because you have to spend so many hours doing it that yep. um, if it doesn't mean something to you, then then it's not worth spending all that time and effort on. So certainly, I don't. There's not um, like a single. Catastrophic moment in my life that is the turning point story of my origin in interest in people's narratives, but my you know just as everyone else, my own narrative is something that has evolved over time. Um, I think one piece of that was was coming out as gay in my um, in my late teens and early twenties and sort of revising the narrative that I had envisioned of my life and trying to renegotiate the new narrative that I was telling about my life with everyone else my, you know, my peers and my family. Um, and alongside that really, you know, spending hours and hours in the theater working mostly as a director, not as an actor. Um, I've done some acting because it's hard to do theater without doing any acting, but I'm not actually that good at it. Um, but I do think, I do think I have some facility with the process of directing. And so being deeply engaged in sort of working on my own story while working with actors to try to help them embody um, and sort of keep the stakes high for their character's story, um, for me, that really kicks it all off. Yeah. Thanks for, and thanks for sharing that. And, and um, I, I guess, you know, one of the things, um, you know, so we, we, one of the ways we make sense of our experience is through narrative, and um, but it's not it's not the only piece of our personality and ourself. But you know, what what roles does narrative play in our personality and our sense of self? Sure, sure. So the the sort of prevailing model in the field of personality psychology these days is a model that posits three domains of personality, with narrative being one of them. Very briefly, the other two domains, um, the first one is concerned with dispositional traits. These are the heavily genetically informed parts of our personality that are evident quite, quite early in life, like in infancy, and um, show a fair amount of stability over the life course and across situations. So that's one level of personality. Another this is level like the, of personality. This is, this is like yeah, the big five. Uh, exactly. Introversion, yes, extroversion, five. openness. Uh, you got it. Conscientiousness, okay. agreeableness, yep. and neuroticism. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. So the, the big five traits do a nice job capturing one domain of personality. Um, and traits are incredibly powerful at predicting life outcomes, um, but they don't always predict very well how a given individual is going to behave in a given situation. So for that, we move to a different domain of personality, which gets called characteristic adaptations. And these are the contextualized parts of personality that explain, and, and they're the parts of personality that are contextualized within time, both sort of developmental time, but also, you know, over the course of the day, over the course of the year, within place or situation and within social role. So me as a, you know, as a faculty member, it might be motivated for different kinds of things than me as a partner or a father. Um, and so 
the broad swath of personality that's concerned with the contextualized aspects of ourselves gets labeled as its own domain of personality. And then the third, and and level two, or this second domain, is also quite robust um, at predicting individual behavior in given situations. What it doesn't do is weave it all together into an integrated sense of self. And so that's what narrative identity does. Narrative identity is the story that weaves together the past as we perceive it, the present as we, uh, as we come to un- understand it, and the future as we imagine it. And it weaves it all together and into an integrative narrative that tells us what our lives mean to us. So this sense that the individual's own meaning-making processes ought to be considered part of personality really lives in this third domain. And, and I, I want to dig in. I, I want to ask you a little bit about this and maybe dig into it in the third segment when we talk about what, what does narrative psychology offer or mean for uh, higher education, engineering education transformation. But since we were just talking about Olin and, and your experience there, and, and uh, it, it seems as though there's some connection between the, the meaning-making of story-making and, and the Olin story. Uh, and we'll say more yeah. later, but I'm just curious about kind of a, a first blush in this first segment. Oh, yeah. So every culture needs a narrative. <laughs> we call those narratives master narratives, which are sort yeah. of shared cultural narratives about how things are supposed to unfold. Yeah. And, and Olin has a narrative, um, and it's a narrative that is both touches into the sort of original narrative that was woven when the college was first founded, um, but it's very much an evolving narrative um, and one that all the members of our community are, are quite deeply engaged in at the moment. Um, so I think you're right that Olin sort of positioned itself with what we would call a counter-narrative, so a narrative that tries to resist parts of the master narrative within the field of engineering education. Um, but it's also a narrative that is evolving as we speak. And indeed, every, not, narratives exist, obviously, not just at the cultural level, but every member of a culture needs to engage with yep. the master narratives that they find themselves embedded in. And yep. o- Olin, as a community, is very actively working on how to make room for a more diverse set of individual narratives to coexist within our shared master narrative, trying to minimize the tensions between them. No, this is great, and I, I think we need to, you know, I, I, I want to talk about some of the applications of this uh, later on, but I think we need to dig a little bit and take the, take your research and the and you know life story psychology, narrative psychology a little bit more seriously in the next segment. Uh, Sounds great. Why don't we Why don't we take a break and come back to that in the next segment? Sounds great. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special special guest, Jonathan Adler. Stay with us in the next segment. We're going to dig a little deeper into the, this uh, interesting research on, on narrative psychology. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Uh, the second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates and a whole new engineer. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your organization. Uh, and um, and get the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And you can ask questions, uh, make comments, or, or um, um, interact with uh, others on, B- on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. And so uh, we're back with uh, Jonathan Adler, uh, for, uh, professor of psychology at, at Olin College. And, and Jonathan, in the last segment we were... Um, we were talking about um, your research in, um, uh, well, in actually in in uh, making sense of of, of uh, negative um, occurrences in our lives, but but also in narrative psychology. And as part of your graduate work at Northwestern, you worked with a leader in in the field of narrative psychology, Dan McAdams. How how has his research helped shape? Um, the ideas in this field. Yeah, immensely. Yeah, Dan was the reason that I wanted to go to Northwestern. Um, I really was hoping to work with him directly. So he's been really a driving force within the field of personality psychology. Um, Narrative has really sort of taken off as a as a vehicle for understanding things across a wide variety of academic disciplines. And, and I have to say, in the culture writ large these days, there's sort of a of deep interest in narrative. Um, but Dan has really been a huge force in trying to bring the tools of personality science for understanding the stories that we tell about ourselves. Um, so he laid down much of the original theory um, and has since spent much of his career really trying to build an empirical case for the importance of narrative identity. He's also um, focused squarely on the midlife years. There's a lot of interest among identity researchers in adolescence and early adulthood when people are first forming their identity, 
But of course, our identity continues to evolve over the lifespan, and Dan has really done a lot of work on how identity continues to develop in midlife. Yeah, and you know, actually, you know, when I was in college back in the 70s, I hate to admit, I, you know, so behaviorism was still pretty dominant. You know, cognitive yeah. psych was kind of um, starting to challenge things, but it's it's hard from our perspective now to understand you know, how behaviorism sort of ignored all this stuff that's pretty clearly in our heads uh, and, yeah, and pretty and important. Only, I, I think, just, your, yeah. I think your observation is exactly right. At, at the time that Dan was in graduate school, not only was behaviorism still reigning supreme, but within psychology, um, social psychology was really having um, a huge moment. And there was a lot of questioning about whether there was such a thing as personality at all, whether we yeah. were not just wholly influenced by our situation and reinvented moment to moment. So it was, it was quite a time to propose sort of a grand theory of interiority. Yeah. So, and, and you know, and you think about the, you know, so, and, and maybe later we'll talk, you know, there, there are a lot of influences on educational reformers that have psychological origins, but, you know, a lot of them seem to have arisen at that kind of magic moment of um, yeah. trying to, um, you know, come in, come in between those two things. So, and you know, and you you just talked a little bit about these um, these um, these three levels: the dispositional traits and the uh, um, characteristic, characteristic adaptations, adaptations and yeah. the narrative. I guess the. Um, I think the first one, you know, if anybody takes uh, Myers Briggs or a big um, a big five uh, test, they have some sense of what that level's about. But what about the what's that second level about? Sure, let me. I can't resist saying one quick follow up, which is about sure. Myers Briggs. The Myers Briggs is, you know, a wildly popular and widely used test that does not have a great scientific record behind it yeah. Um, yeah. compared to, say, the big five. Yes. Um, so it's, it's all, I always have a little twinge when those two get lumped together, and I had to, to say more about that. Um, but yeah, let me say more about, about level two. Yep. So this is the way, this is um, the level of personality, again, that is sort of contextualized within time, place, and social role. And I think maybe two examples um, make that clear. So on the first is the notion of different motivations over the course of the lifespan. So, you know, it it seems sort of no duh to say that children are motivated by different things than adults, but um, one of the reigning models of lifespan personality development is that of Eric Erickson, um, who suggested that at each stage of the lifespan, there's a different central conflict that people are working on. So I have a almost two-year-old, I can tell you that in toddlerhood, the central conflict is autonomy versus shame and doubt, that toddlers love to say no, and it's not because they drop in extroversion or rise in neuroticism, it's because they're working on differentiating themselves from their parents for the first time. Um, They realize that when they say no, stuff happens in the world. So there's that kind of lifespan development part of level two. And then there's also um, the sort of contextual specificity of things. So for example, one of the um, big five traits is conscientiousness, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like, persevering, diligent. 
Um, I knew someone in high school who I think people would have said was a fairly highly conscientious person, but he failed his Spanish class. And that's not what you would have predicted just knowing his traits. What the, the back story was that he loathed his Spanish class and he desperately wanted to leave it, but his parents wouldn't let him. And so he decided that his only way out was to fail it. Now, you would never have predicted that behavior if you had only known his traits. So you needed something at another level of personality to, to understand that contextualized motivation. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then... Um and then you mentioned that the third level is this kind of integration to, together of these um, these That's two right. other levels, and so well, and really, and more than that, that each yeah. level is sort of has some emergent properties that can't really be well explained at the at the other levels. Yeah, and and narrative identity is not something that exists throughout the lifespan. It's a fairly sophisticated cognitive thing to do. So children, while they can tell stories, are not doing these, this sort of broad, integrative storytelling about their lives. That really kicks off in adolescence. And there's a, a fairly robust and compelling literature about what happens in adolescence that leads people to start to tell stories about their lives. On the one hand, the biological transformation of the body that comes with puberty cues the question, am I, how am I still the same person that I was before now that I look so different? There's a fair amount of cognitive maturation that happens in, around puberty um, that sort of prepares people's brains to be able to do this task. And then there are also social expectations that at least, and these are culturally bound, of course, but at least in Western cultures, we have social expectations that adolescents begin to articulate a story of their lives and what they're doing. So we might ask a five-year-old, what do you want to be when you grow up? But we don't expect them to mean it. But we do start to expect um, adolescents to mean that. So we get this biological transformation, cognitive maturation, and social expectation all conspiring to kick off the, the beginning of narrative identity in adolescence. Yeah, and, and and this whole you know, and we've kind of been using the term narrative and narrative identity and also story, without really talking about what they are. And and we don't necessarily want to get into dry academic definitions here. But I was reading through the papers you sent me a show prep, and so um, uh, something that was in uh, one of Dan McAdams' papers was the following quote: "Narrative identity is the internalized." No, I'm sorry, that's. Um, yeah, that's from yours. Uh, from Dan's was stories are fundamentally about the vicissitudes of human intention organized in time. I love yeah, that. Yeah, and that's not actually Dan. That's Jerome Bruner, um, which who we all cite. That's as I was looking through your questions. That was where I thought we might talk here. Yeah, um, that's. I think that's a good psychological definition of story. That they are fundamentally about characters trying to do things over time. Yeah, and then uh, from yours, uh, uh, you wrote, narrative identity is the internalized, evolving story of the self that each person crafts to provide his or her life with a sense of purpose and unity. Um, yeah, and that, again, that's more Dan than me. So we've got Bruner, Dan, I don't know that I follow in that lineage, but um, so yes, I think that's, that's a nice way of translating the broader notion of what's a psychological definition of story into, okay, well then what does storied identity look like? Okay. So, um, what are some of the, 
you know, so as we as you try to, as as you professionally look at story, uh, you try to decompose it and understand it in various pieces and 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 dimensions. What are some of the features or dimensions of of story or narrative? Or, or well, and I'll, I'm going to story yeah, and narrative identity, and you have to be precise in, uh, to the extent that you wish in in dis- in making the distinctions you wish. Yeah, I think that's a good question because it's not the answer is not necessarily the most intuitive one. So narrative psychologists don't spend a ton of time on the content of people's stories. There are people who study narrative content, but the vast majority of the field is actually interested in the themes of people's stories. Um, while content is variable over time, people will tell you different kind of stories about different kinds of things. The themes that people use in constructing their lives demonstrate some stability to them. And okay. so we tend to look at, uh, at the thematic content of people's stories, and I can say more about that if you want. Yeah, why don't, please. Yeah. So some colleagues and I recently tried to collect every study that has looked at the relationship between narrative identity and psychological well-being to try to make sense of that field. And we clustered the, the variables that narrative psychologists have looked at into roughly four categories. So I can tell you quickly about each of them. Um, the first are motivational themes. So the, the sort of signature themes in this category are agency and communion. Agency is the, is a quality of the main character trying to direct the course of their lives, actively respond when things happen to them, as opposed to being batted around by the whims of external forces. And communion is about the drive for connection, to be loved and loving, to take care of other people, to be taken care of. All life stories have agency and communion in them to a certain degree. Well, and the agency goes back to, those are, you know, Julian Rotter and yep. an internal versus external uh, locus of control kinds of yep. things back I, in the I 50s. I think that's, that's something that comes up a lot. I, right, I think of agency as sort of the, the narrative version of locus of control to a certain extent. Yeah. Okay. Keep, yeah, so, so then we have going. affective themes. Um, okay. These are the sort of emotional quality of people's narratives. And while, again, while there are people who have looked at just sort of what emotions show up in people's stories, um, the emphasis is more on affective sequences over time. So a pair of themes that shows up a lot in the literature are called redemption and contamination sequences. In redemption sequences, stories that start out bad have good endings, and in contamination sequences, stories that start out good have bad endings. Mm. Everyone has positive and negative experiences in their lives, so this is not about the objective history of their lives. It's really yeah. about where you, cut, where you make the chapter breaks in your life. Did this chapter start good and end bad or start bad and end good? That's about how you weave your experience into a story. Um, and there are agency, communion, redemption, and contamination all have quite robust relationships with psychological well-being. So then the third category are themes of integrative meaning. It's sort of how people go about um, making meaning of their experiences. And here um, we talk a lot about the distinction between assimilative meaning and accommodative meaning. So most of what we do all the time is assimilative. We take our experiences, we weave them into the story that we've been telling. We assimilate them. 
Every once in a while, we have moments of accommodative processing where something happens that really calls the story into question, that makes us rethink the plot line. Um, that's accommodative processing, um, and that also has sort of robust relationships with psychological well-being. Yeah. And then the third category of variables are are structural elements of people's stories. So we're very interested in the, the sort of overall coherence of people's stories, not, um, not just like does sentence two logically follow sentence one, although that is part of coherence, but psychological coherence um, is more richly elaborated than that. But are you weaving a story that makes sense about your life, that's legible to an audience? Yeah. And... Um I think in uh, one of the a paper you sent uh, that you that you wrote and worked on, you, you said that um, change in narrative is seen by people in the field as as critical in therapy, but surprisingly difficult to measure. And if I'm not mistaken, you wrote the first paper that attempted to measure the connection between uh, change in mental health uh, and change in um, uh, change in narrative. And so, what did yeah, and uh, we've just got a couple of minutes left in the segment. So in that time, what can you tell us about what you learned? Sure. Yeah. So we think about narrative as a guiding metaphor for the therapeutic endeavor. So whatever kind of therapy you're in for whatever kind of problem, at a fundamental level, what you're trying to do is rewrite the story of yourself. And so, yeah, in the study that you're talking about, we followed a group of psychotherapy patients from before they started seeing a therapist, they contacted the clinic to say they wanted to see a therapist, but they hadn't gotten started yet, through several months of treatment, and in between every session, we got their stories and we measured their mental health in sort of standard ways. And um, we looked at a couple of things in that study, but the, the finding that most pops out related to this theme of agency, this um, how much are you portraying yourself as in the driver's seat, and we found that agency increased over the course of psychotherapy. Um, so even though we, um, we had over 500 narratives that were randomized, we didn't know who was telling which story when we did the coding. When we linked them back up, we found that agency over the sample increased over the course of treatment. And then um, using a, a technique called lagged hierarchical linear modeling, we were able to demonstrate that people's stories actually changed before their mental health changed. So the slope of the line of agency actually changed before the slope of the line of mental health. So we called the story, the study living into the story because it seemed as though people were sort of constructing a new story about their lives and then living their way into it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. And, and um, uh, it seems connect, I, you know, I, in, in um, talking to people in a coaching setting, that seems to be intuitively what's going on people will tell you things about how they, they'd like and then later things actually change in their lives and I, it yeah. seems like that, that, that that's an important result that that can actually be measured to be the case. Yeah, so we talk about narrative identity as a foundation for meaning, that you sort yeah. of tap into it when you need it as you go. Yeah. And in other research, I show that the individual differences in the stories are, people are telling about their lives predict their trajectory of mental health after difficult life experiences. Mm. Now, this is great. And I, I'd like to, I think we need to take a break, but after the break, I'd like to come back and, and see if we, you know, the, the show is... Um, 
is largely about transforming education. I'm just wondering what uh, if we can and and their cautions in using research like this in the large. But practitioners got to do what they got to do, and so uh, if we're Absolutely. to use this kind of research, in what ways might we use this research or the findings of research like this to help um, help craft uh, design better better schools? Sounds great. So this is. Uh, this is Big Beacon Radio, and uh, with our special guest uh, Jonathan Adler. In the next segment, we want to um, want to talk about what uh, narrative psychology and and narrative identity mean for the crafting of better experiences in higher education. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And the final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming uh, webinar. Join us uh, Wednesday, 29 March at 4 p.m. Eastern. And uh, go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. So we're uh, uh, back with uh, Jonathan Adler from Olin College, and we've been talking about, uh, been talking about narrative identity and narrative psychology and, and uh, some, of the, uh, some of the interesting uh, results that are coming together. And, and, and Jonathan, this last segment, I think it's important for us to um, reflect on the the ways in which uh, this this kind of work might help inform uh, um, efforts in transforming engineering and higher education more gen- generally. So, in what ways can um, the growing understanding of narrative psychology and narrative identity be and helpful in improving engineering and higher education? Sure. I guess I think there are two ways. Um, in, and those two ways correspond to the different sort of levels at which narrative exists. One is at the cultural level within the field of engineering education and yep. trying to identify what the master narratives are there 
examine them, determine if they're working, if they're the ones the field wants to be embracing, and if not, trying to figure out how to shift them. And then at the other end, as higher educators across the faculty and staff spectrum, we're developing people, not just employees. And so college is a time of immense identity development, and we really need to attend to that with the same rigor that we bring to the core of the curriculum. Um, so I think there's work to be done on how we as educators develop our students as people and um, on developing the, the broader narrative about what engineering education is. Yeah, and, and it's, it seems like one of the, in, in, in talking about this before, it seems as though one of the... Um, the, the master narrative of higher education is goes back to what the founding of the University of Bologna in 1088, and uh, which was the uh, the sharing of uh, newly found expertise in Roman law uh, that was found in Pisa. Um, and but it, essentially, the narrative of higher education for many years has it seems to me, and I and I understand that. Um, uh, it, 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 this is going against the uh, focus on content, but it seems to me that the content of the narrative is important here if we're going to make any headway, that that the narrative of, of higher education has been invested in um, this expertise and the sharing of expertise as and, uh, the dominant culture and that the university is an assembly of experts. Comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's... You know, you have a deeper understanding of the master narrative of higher education than I do, but that seems like an accurate diagnosis to me. Well, and then, and then in talking about the the ways in which Olin's narrative ha- has shifted, you would use words like um, it is really the it really aligned with the understanding of development psych- developmental psychology and and helping young people evolve this kind of sense of self that is. Um, consistent with um, uh, the different levels of personality and so forth, and you know, trying for them to find something that gives them meaning in their lives. That's a pretty different, um, and and sometimes could be in conflict with this expert expertise narrative. This kind of un uh, Mark and I use the term unleashing. That's not a technical psychological term but it seems to me that there are elements of of the new the counter narrative as you called it before that are that um that are in opposition to this kind of um or need to be integrate the the poles of these these two opposites need to find an accommodation somehow comment yes i think that's exactly right i think that olin has is is principally positioned as a vehicle for changing the master narrative in engineering education about what we're doing away from content delivery and towards the development of people as engineers who have a set of tools, but really what they know how to do are, are ask the right kind of, kinds of questions and pursue the answers to those questions rigorously, interdisciplinarily, um, and sort of mindfully. And so I think, um, you know, that's the, there, if, there's a, if there are two themes of that Olin narrative, one is agency, right, sort of empowering yep. students to, yep. um, to write their own narratives about what's important and, and what they want to pursue, and also redemption. Um, I think there's a, 
a strong narrative in the field of engineering education that the current system isn't working. There are various misalignments between um, what's happening in, in higher education and what the workforce especially really needs. Rick Miller, our president, is always talking about that. And yeah. Olin seeks to be a, a redemption agent, one <clears throat> you know, in which we will try to transform that and really try to, to bring into better alignment and not just alignment, but sort of envisioning a new possibility for the future. Uh, something you just said, really. Uh, so it, uh, in talking about the master narratives, and there were and the article had a had a number of uh, principles: um, utility, ubiquity, um, mm-hmm. rigidity, co- the compulsory nature, and mm-hmm. there was one other invisibility. Uh, invisibility, and but actually, it seems to me that the invis that part of what you just said suggests that Olin is challenging the invisibility and the compulsory nature of mas- the master narrative, which is actually a meta-level challenge to the whole notion of how stories are are actually conducted. Comment. I think that's right. So the article you're referring to is by is not by me. It's by two of my colleagues, Kate yeah. McLean and Moin Syed. Um, yeah. It came out last summer, and, um, and I think it was, it's the first real attempt to provide an empirical basis for studying master narratives. And yep. it's really a masterpiece of a, of a paper. And, right, it puts forth these five criteria of what constitutes a master narrative. And I think you're right in focusing in on the compulsory nature um, as one of, the primary, um, one of the primary focuses of Olin's effort at changing the narrative, that there's been a narrative around what it means to be an engineer. Engineering education must include X, Y, and Z. And Olin is really trying to um, shift that and say, actually, we're producing highly successful engineers um, who are broadening the notion of what an engineer is and um, not doing it in the sort of compulsory way that, that the dominant paradigm insists upon. But it's and but it seems to me it's even, it's even it it's almost even bigger than that. There's a sense of you know so if if we are unaware and if we are not mindful, then we are in the narrative, our narrative mind. We're living the story. Oh, but that's if we're, exactly, if we're aware, that's exactly right. So there's another scholar, yeah. Phil Hammock, who writes about master narratives, and he basically says he's writing about individual narratives, but he's very interested in the relationship between the individual and their cultural context. Yeah. And he says, right, in every time you're telling your story, you are either supporting or repudiating the dominant narratives in your culture. Those are the only options. You get mm-hmm. to repeat it and therefore support it implicitly or resist it. So but it's with, a deeply but, the personal is political approach, yeah. and I think that's right, um, that by continuing to do things the way they've always been done, you are implicitly suggesting that is the way they ought to be done. And, though, if you have actually awareness of stories as, the, as this thing, and you're aware of the story, and it seems to me that that's what goes on in therapy or coaching is – this greater awareness of story allows for allows for accelerated change. Um, it, until you recognize the story is a story, um, yes, uh, and that has there's yet yeah, there are facts that can't be changed, and then there are all kinds of judgments and interpretations that can. Um, 
that there's not really much potential for change. But once I, that's recognized, well, there's a possibility for change. Yes. So going back to the beginning of American psychology, William James talked about yep. the distinction between the I and the me. And that's been translated into modern narrative psychology to suggest that we are both the narrator and the protagonist in our lives. And we spend most of our time being the protagonist, going about and doing our lives. But it is the moments when we switch into being the narrator that have the most potential for transformative change. And I would argue that's true at the individual level, at the sort of dyadic, therapeutic, or coaching level, and then at the broader institutional or even cultural level. Yeah. Now, this is, uh, this work is so rich and, and, and it, it seems as you know. So you know, psychology has, as like any field, has uh, lots of pieces and subfields, and mm-hmm. and some of the subfields influence how other educational, how educational thinkers think about doing things. And but it seems like there's a st- a story connection or a narrative connection can can be made to say, Carol Dweck's work and Ed Deasy's work on motivation, mm-hmm. Ed Shine's work on culture, Brene Brown's work on wholeheartedness, and Seligman's work on positive psychology. Is, is, I mean, I, as, a, as a layman, uh, it seems like story is connected to those things, if not inspiring them or informing them. Comment. Yeah, I think narrative weaves it all together. So whatever yeah. tools you're using, you have to communicate them in a story. That's Bruner says that's the fundamental mode of human cognition and communication. So, you know, a mindset from Carol Dweck's work is a story about how to manage setbacks. And DC and Ryan's self-determination theory is a set of key themes that show up in anyone's narrative. Mm -hmm. So I think that narrative is the vehicle by which we both make meaning and communicate that meaning. So whichever other tools you're using, narrative is the the integrative tool that, that weaves them all together. We've just got about a minute less left. I'm going to give you the last word. What would you, uh, what would you like to uh, tell our listeners in closing about about uh, about narrative about about your work in general? Yeah. So I guess picking up on the the point we just were talking about, if you ignore the narratives that abound in higher education at the level of the field, at the level of the institution, and at the level of the individual, whether that's faculty, staff, or students you're missing the integrative mechanism of being, of communicating. So we know how narratives shape our experience, and they offer a tool for both institutional and individual development. We're all the narrators, not just the protagonists. Jonathan, thank you, thank you for uh, being on, on the show. People can find out more about your work, I assume, at, uh, at the Olin uh, website at olin.edu. Yep, that's right. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, uh, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to our guest, Jonathan Adler, and Olin College. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, on our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.